James chapter 3. And just look at verse 13. We'll read that and then we'll bow in prayer. It says this, Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversations his work with meekness of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. Thank you for the songs we've sang. But now asking you, Lord, to open our hearts, open our minds to the truth that you'd have for us. And Father, do your work that only you and you alone can do, and we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It was back in 2005 when my family and I arrived in Zambia. We were going through somewhat of a cultural shock. Uh, Many times we wouldn't have electricity. The electricity uh, would go off at 5 in the morning and come on at midnight. And so during the day, if you went and turned on your lights and realized you didn't have any electricity, at around midnight, all the lights in your house would come on and you would wake up. Uh, We'd have no running water. I used to have to travel about a mile, mile and a half to a little well, uh, get the running water and put waters in, in buckets. And then as I was traveling back on those roads, uh, many times the water would spill out. We had uh, a fuel shortage, a propane shortage, uh, so we couldn't cook. So we learned almost to cook all of our meals outside on an open fire. Uh, during the weekends, we would travel out into the bush where we would go out there and preach and teach. Uh, to many different churches, some of them church plants, just starting churches. And then also during that time, we were in the process of starting a Bible college. And then also, we were in the beginning stages of raising our children, and we had five children, seven and under, at that time. I remember looking back as we were going through that time, with the chaos of a new culture, with the chaos and Uh, confusion of trying to do ministry, of trying to raise a family in that environment. And one of the questions that was continually on my mind in those early days was how can I, in the ministry that God has called me, how can I, with the family that God has given me, how can I experience a fruitful harvest of God's blessing where Christ is honored, where peace and righteousness reside, where it's a home of just the blessing of God. Uh, During that time, a pastor and I uh, were co-teaching through the book of James, and I was uh, given the task to teach through James 3, 13 through 18. And it was one of those passages that at that time was just eye-opening. It really was an answer to the question that I had been seeking. And that's the passage I want to look at this morning. And the question as we go back into our passage this morning is this, how do we experience a fruitful harvest of God's blessing in your home, in our work or your work, in our church, or wherever God puts us. 
And I want you to notice how James begins this section, starting in verse 13. He begins with a question, and the question is this. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? In essence, James is saying, calling out, all of you who think you are wise and all of you who are endued with knowledge, would you please step forward? We're going to go ahead and we're going to have a meeting up here on the platform. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to analyze that claim. That's what James is doing. Now the question when you come to a passage like this is why does James begin this way? Well, remember that the book of James is a very practical book. And James is dealing with a major issue, a major issue in his day, and a major issue in our day. It's been an issue throughout all of church history. And the issue is this. There is a major separation of what we claim to be and believe in Christ and how we act and live in Christ. A separation from what we say we are and how we live and act. And that's really what James is dealing with when you come to his book. And in essence, what James is going to do is he's going to say that the test of what you claim to believe, the test is ultimately, ultimately will be seen in how you live. That's why James says very early on in James 1, be doers of the word, not hearers only, only deceiving your own selves. In essence, if you hear and you say, but you don't do, you're living a life of deception. So he now comes and he begins this section, and here's the claim. You who are wise, you who claim to have knowledge, step out and let's put that claim to the test. Right? And right away now what he does is he's going to describe or give the nature of what true biblical wisdom looks like. Notice what he says in verse 13. He asks the question, who is wise man among and a dude with knowledge among you? And then he gives the description. Here's the nature. Let him show out of a good conversation or lifestyle his work with meekness of wisdom. And so in essence, he says a wise person, if you're truly wise, if you're in truly endued with knowledge or endowed with knowledge, there's two ways you can tell. And this is really just his introduction. Here's what he says. The first way is that true wisdom produces a conduct of good works. That's what the word conversation means. It means lifestyle. So he says, if someone is wise, they're living a life, conducting themselves in a way of good works. And of course, what are the good works? Well, the good works are that which glorifies God. And so in essence, what what James is saying is a wise person is the one who has a skillful expertise. He's able to take his knowledge 
and apply it to every area of his of your life. Have you ever been around someone who's just skillful at something? And they're able to take this knowledge and apply it to their craft. Uh, some of you know Arnie Anderson. Arnie Anderson um, has been a violin maker for, for years. Uh, he teaches here at the school of violin and other musical instruments. Well, I had the privilege a number of years ago to make a violin with Arnie. Uh, Arnie has made over 360 violins. And when you watch him work, he'll take his light, he'll take this magnifying glass, and he'll take this violin and he'll, he'll put it up to his ear and he'll tap it to see what kind of sound it's making. And then he'll take these little blades and he'll begin to carve out, tap it again. And I'd be working with Arnie, and I was amazed at the craftsmanship, and he would give me a piece, and he'd say, okay, Lee, here's what you need to do. Start working this, start molding this. And for hours, sometimes days, I'd be working on one section, and he would come over and go, "Uh, let me see, and he would tap it and go, okay, a little bit more, a little bit more. Then he would do something like this. He would say, let me show you on my violin. And his violin was just fresh. He hadn't even worked on it. And within five minutes, he had it perfected. And after the bitterness and the jealousy and the anger resided in me, I was amazed at the skill and the craftsmanship that Arnie had. That's really the idea. It's this idea of skillfulness. When you look at at wisdom, it's the idea of skillfulness in living. And so it's applying true wisdom, applies, produces good works. And then notice what he says secondly, secondly as he goes on there in verse 13 at the end, his works with meekness of wisdom. It produces an attitude of humility. Now, what is meekness? A lot of times when you use that word meekness, we think that it equals weakness. Uh, That is not what meekness means. In fact, the Amish, who had these beautiful and powerful Belgian horses, Uh, have you ever gone through an Amish country and walked them Uh, watch them work with their horses. They'll say one word and and the horse will go this way. They'll say another word and the horse will go this way. They'll say another word and that horse will stop or back up. Powerful, powerful animals. And so they're working with these beautiful and powerful horses. And when they're in the process of training and breaking them, once the horse has been broken, they'll say that the horse has been meek. Power under control. And so meekness and humility has the idea of gentleness. And so when we're applying it into our lives, it really has this kind of thinking. As believers, we understand who we are in Christ. We understand that we have been glorious saved from our sins. We understand that we have been saved to a majestic God to live for Him. 
And it recognizes that God alone gives fulfillment and helps us to navigate in this world. It's coming to this majestic God saying, God, I'm yours. Thank you. I'm just a sinner. But in your grace, you saved me. And God, I need your help every moment of every day. That's the idea of humility. So he asks the question. He then says, here's the test. Now what James does is he moves on. He says, listen, there's two different types of wisdom that is out there. Where they come from, what they look like, and what the results of that wisdom look like. So in essence, he's going to say, if you want this kind of wisdom with this kind of result, here's what it is. So now look at the first wisdom, verses 14 through 16. He says this, But if you have bitter envying and strife or selfish ambition in your hearts, glory not and don't lie against the truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And then verse 16, here's the result. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So the first type of wisdom that he is going to talk about is a wisdom that is earthly. This is a wisdom where we as believers say, in the beginning, God. This is a wisdom that says, in the beginning, Big Bang, man, whatever. This is a wisdom that is earthly. And notice how he describes this kind of wisdom. Look at the, uh, the attitudes. Verse 14, he says, bitter envying. So the mark of an earthly wisdom is one that is bitter envying. Probably you might have in your Bible another translation of jealousies. Um, it is the idea of here of selfish motivation with, which envies and criticizes others. Now, do you, do you know how jealousy and envy usually work? It usually works in those or around those who have the same calling or the same occupation as you. For instance, uh, when I look at Jack Nicholas and I look at Tiger Woods and I watch them play golf, all right, not so much Tiger right now, I am at absolutely in awe of what they can do with that stupid little white ball. I'm not jealous of them. I'm in awe of them. Because when I get up and hit that stupid little white ball, guess what happens? It goes that way. It goes that way. Then I get so frustrated, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to kill this little white ball. And I get up with all of my might to just nail that thing, and guess how far it goes? Like 10 feet. 
So when I look at guys like Jack Nicholas and I look at guys like Tiger Woods, I'm not in any way jealous or even envious of them. I'm awed at them. But do you know where jealousy usually works? If you're a salesperson, it's with the person in the next stall over you. Because it seems like every single month, he seems to get a little bit of a better sale. He seems to produce a little bit more. And what begins to happen in your heart, if you're not careful, is this idea of envy and jealousy, which then tends to criticize. So someone comes up and says, man, uh, Tommy just had a great month selling again. And you're looking at your books and you say, yeah, but come here, let me tell you something. He did have a great month of selling, but let me tell you something about Tommy. Don't do that. You see, jealousies and envies usually happen with those who are really in the same type of occupation, doing the same thing we are, and there are equal or there even are superior. And so this is an attitude that comes that he says is not of God, but ultimately of the world. Then he moves on in verse 14 again. He says, but if you have bitter envying and strife, and the Greek there actually is the idea of selfish ambition. Now, the result of selfish ambition is strife. Now, this is a very rare word in our Bible. I believe it's only used here in James. But interestingly, Aristotle used this word, and do you know how he used it? He used this word of selfish ambition of those who are self-seeking in the pursuit, now get this, of the political office. So even back in Aristotle's day, how did they view politicians? Just an interesting fact. They get up from the platform. They say, here's why we're doing. It's really for you. We love you. And then deep in their heart, why are they really doing it? And that's just not politicians. That's pastors. That's salesmen. It's across the board. And so it's this idea of selfish ambition. And that selfish ambition is one who schemes to get what they want. And they'll twist things. Um, they become contentious if they don't get what they want. Begin to fight. That's where the idea of strife comes. And it has the idea of divisiveness. When I don't get what I want and strife comes, there's now a division. And so there's bitter envying, there's strife. And then lastly, this type of wisdom is self-deceiving. Look at what it says again, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. And then look at this next phrase. And lie not against the truth. That's self-deception. Don't sin against the truth by, in this context, by boasting in your wisdom. 
Because the reality is, is you're deceiving yourself. Now he goes on, he says he describes that type of wisdom. Now he says, where is it sourced? Verse 15, this wisdom descendeth not from above. This is not God's wisdom, but is earthly. It's in contrast to God. It's sourced on the earth. Like I just said a little bit earlier, it's not beginning with, in the beginning, God said. But it's beginning with what man says. It's earthly. It's fleshly or unspiritual. And it, it goes with what I desire and what I want, not with what God wants. And it's devilish. And its ultimate source is demonic. And so this is the type of wisdom. Now notice the results. Verse 16. And I want you to get this. Because this is where James is moving. Verse 16 and then we'll see this in verse 18. For where envying and strife are taking place, where this type of worldly wisdom is at work, Notice the result. There is confusion and every evil work. The word confusion there really is the idea of disorder or unruliness. Um, it's the idea of um, anti-authority. And then the idea of every evil work is it's an unlimited variety of sin. All right, so now let me, let me try to illustrate this as um, 20, almost 26 years of ministry now as I've counseled people. So here we are, we're in South Africa, and by, by all outward appearances, there is a really good family. They come to church every week, um, play the piano at times. But I'm hearing rumblings from the mom that things are not as they seem in the house. Finally, one day the mom comes and she says, Pastor, can I meet with you with my husband and my, and my children? And I say, sure. And so they come and you can tell the children are not happy to be there. You can tell the husband has been dragged in to be there. And as the talk begins to happen, you realize that there is disorder, there is confusion, there is unruliness deep in this house, and with that, there's every evil device happening, which they went on to explain. I was thinking to myself, okay, I know the results. That's the fruit of what's happening. Now, because I know that, I also know this. Somewhere they're allowing a worldly wisdom to penetrate their home. What is that? Well, comes out probably six months later of the fights that have been going on with mom and dad, the arguing and the bitterness. Later on, it was found out that the husband was cheating on his wife. The husband uh, told 
the children but didn't tell his wife, and so the children were living with that knowledge. And then I'm there later on as the, girl, as the children are breaking down in tears, explaining what happened. I said, that's the result of worldly wisdom. When you live for yourself, when you live after the world, what does that cause? It causes strife. It causes jealousies. And what is the result of that? Confusion or disorder and every device of evil thing that you can imagine. Now, when I was studying this many years ago, let me be honest with you, when I came to that realization, there was such, such conviction in my life. Because sometimes we think wisdom and knowledge is just simply what I know, and I can have all of the facts. I'm a pastor. I mean, I can quote whole passages and whole chapters to you. And there's times in the household when things would happen and I would get very angry and in self-righteousness would yell. Come to a passage like this. Or James, not the righteousness of man that works, or it's not the, the wrath of man that works the righteousness of God. And God began to work in my heart. If you want the result of a godly righteousness, then you can't follow the path of worldly wisdom. I think at this time, we could all just bow our heads and say, sorry, God. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? He moves on, and quickly, as I conclude, he talks about the description of worldly wisdom, but now he gives the description of wisdom that is from above. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, and look at how he describes it, is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's easy to be entreated, it's full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And here's the result, verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness sown in peace of them that make peace. And so he says this type of wisdom that comes from God is pure. The idea of pure means that it's not tainted with any sin or wickedness. It doesn't produce evil. It's what you see. What you see is what you get. It's peaceable. It's harmonious. It seeks harmonious relationships. It's gentle. I love that word gentle. It's kind. It, it's, the, it's the idea, and he's going to talk about this in a moment, easily entreated. It's the idea of sweet reasonableness. You ever have that when you just come to someone and you go, I need to talk to you? And there's this, this gentleness and this sweet reasonableness that comes out. That's, that's wisdom from above. Easily entreated. That means it's willing to yield. It's open to reason. It's not demanding that I have my own way. It's willing to be compliant to. It's full of mercy. It's mercy is the idea of of love for the neighbor. It's showing uh, 
action. It's love in action. That's what mercy means. It's full of good fruits. It's these acts of mercy that works itself out. And then it's without partiality. It means it's not partial or unwavering. And then it's without hypocrisy. It's not pretending or hiding. The word hypocrisy was used as an actor who puts a mask on. I found in my years of ministry that usually uh, teens can, uh, can spot a hypocrite very quickly. It's not one that wears a mask. And so notice God's wisdom. Beautiful, pure, peaceable, gentle, easily entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Do you enjoy being around people like that? Aren't those enjoyable to be around? What's the result of that? Verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In essence, here's what James is saying. The fruit of righteousness will grow in the climate of peace by those who sow peace and uses peace really as a whole description of this wisdom of God. You want a harvest of righteousness, James is saying? You want to produce an environment of righteousness? Then you have to sow this type of wisdom. And if you display that wisdom, righteousness will be produced. Now, what is the principle here? It's a principle that you're well aware of that James is bringing out. Here's the principle. What you sow, you will what? You will reap. If you sow earthly wisdom, you're just going to reap a whirlwind of hurt. But if you sow God's wisdom, you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, if you display wisdom in your homes, what are you going to reap? If you display God's wisdom in your home, you're going to have your children are they going to be perfect? If you have perfect children, raise your hand. Children, if you think you're perfect, raise your hand. But you're producing an environment where salvation can come. You're producing an environment where respect can happen between husband and wife, between the parents and the children. And you're producing a harmonious relationship where the home is enjoyable to be at. And you enjoy being in that kind of a home? Many times when I'm in counseling, I get people at the end of their rope. And the wife is there in the chair saying, I'm done. No more. And the husband is saying, I want to restore this relationship. Is there anything I can do? And once again, I go back to this principle. You have been sowing for many, many years 
And look at what now you're reaping. And of course, at that point, they're saying, man, I'll start, I'll start sowing good stuff. What's the problem? When you sow seed into a ground, if I were to go and sow corn, does that corn come up tomorrow? If you're not farmers, no, it doesn't. There's a season. And what happens is this has been going on for so long, and now they're at the place where confusion and disorder is taking place, and one of them is saying, can you please just save this relationship? And I'm honest. I can't. But I can tell you what you can start doing. Right now, start sowing God's wisdom. We help them to do that. So if you sow it in your home, you'll reap a harvest of righteousness. As a church planner, I took this principle, if you display God's wisdom in the church, you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness in the church. So let me close with this. How do I get this type of wisdom that God wants? Well, how did you get saved? It came to God through Jesus Christ. And he said, God, would you just please give this to me? And you humbled yourself, you submitted. How do you get this wisdom? You're humbling yourself and you're submitting to God through his word. And God, through the Spirit, gives it to you. But it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's really what wisdom is. God, I want to walk with you today. I want to show your fruit. And it's a moment-by-moment walking with the Lord in which he then helps us to respond correctly in every situation. So as I said, when I studied this in this men's Bible study, this really was life-changing to me. Many times when, when I'm raising a family, I want 10 principles on what to do. All right? Principle number one, do this. Principle number two, spank them all the time. Principle number three, do this. Principle number four, let's go back to number two, spank them all the time. Are there principles? Absolutely. But here it is. It's a moment by moment living out the righteousness and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I just pray that each one of us, Father, would show a wisdom that comes from you, which results in a harvest of righteousness. And Father, where that begins, first of all, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father, if there be one here this morning who has never come to Christ and the finished work of the cross, Father, I pray this morning that they would just turn their eyes towards you and by faith, by faith, accept that great truth and be saved. 
And then, Father, for the rest of us, help us to apply these truths. Help us to live after this type of wisdom that you seek, one that is ultimately peaceable. It's pure. And, Father, we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.